At this point, you should be on the frame with a film strip title that says Oral Hygiene. Welcome to Oral Hygiene. This is the podcast where we talk about educational films, experimental films, caught films, and interesting documentaries. We're looking at the most interesting of documentaries today. Uh, this is Matt. With me today are Mark and Jay from the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Hello, guys. What's up? Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for joining in. I, I definitely like your recording space, uh, Mark. I, I don't have Jay's picture, but uh, mine's real boring. I finally today I just I put up the Zoot Cat poster just so it wouldn't look go. like completely depressing. And my <laughs> it's too yeah, mine's overwhelming, but it's a uh, you know not intentional. I had this background way before I ever thought I'd be on podcasting. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I've I've had places that looked that cool, but it was like with roommates, and it was because of the roommate, not because of me. So, uh, <laughs> but, um, interesting. Today's uh, movie, of course, is the wickedest man in the world. It's a 2003, I believe, BBC uh, documentary about Alistair Crowley, Crowley, whatever you want to call him. Um, I, I I stick with that unholy Crowley thing most of the time. So, because we all write terrible poetry when we we're um in our teens so <laughs> uh no Mark, and that is that is that is correct i believe um a couple historians who have biographied him use that word as a rhyme like yeah this is how you pronounce it yeah that's that's how i remember it but uh mark could you give us like the tv guide rundown of what we're seeing here right so this film is sort of a an okay job at encompassing his life. They did a, a pretty good uh, job of finding like some old audio clips of Alistair Crowley actually speaking. But for the most part, I would say it's not the best portrayal or at least not the most accurate portrayal of him and his life. They kind of hit on the major points and the turning points in his life. Uh, but I think the real merit of the documentary itself is in the source material that they use, like the old pictures that they found that I, I don't think I've seen uh, in a search engine. Uh, so they must have taken those from, you know, some museum or library or some collection somewhere. And then, of course, the audio files to hear Alistair Crowley actually like reading out an incantation or evocation or whatever ritual he was doing. It, it's kind it's chilling if you have this kind of impression of him that the documentary is trying to give uh and that is kind of a you know just half the story really but it's it's fascinating in the sense of like a, what it brings visually and audit auditorially uh as far as old content and mixing it with the narrative i didn't really like the um <laughs> the main guy that was featured maybe just his opinion on crowley he seemed like a little bit of a fanboy but uh yeah it was definitely uh, interesting documentary well it's uh oh no i'm 42 so i had a fair amount of pre-internet time and it's interesting how uh how crowley just sort of like 
seeps into your life like you barely know who this guy is for a while i mean it's mostly rock and roll you know you got uh ozzy osbourne singing mr crowley and then who's this weird guy on the sergeant pepper album cover that sort of thing so <laughs> then and then you know so i think the doc was important in that it was like a good populist way for everyone to sort of uh understand at least a a, a light understanding because love him or hate him he was a relatively a uh, major figure of the early 20th century uh, when everything's said and done, possibly opening up the age of Horace again for better or for worse. Now, I, and I do think they, um, they pointed out the Sifalu incident in the documentary. A am I climbing one? Is it? No, the, uh, the one in Italy where he, where oh, he, right. uh, so maybe I, I should retract what I said before, because I, I think this is one of the documentaries or pieces of commentary on Crowley's life that leads you to believe that maybe he was more evil than he was. But then they also kind of take it back a little bit at some points with like that one guy who seemed like I said was a little bit of a fanboy. But in my opinion, Alistair Crowley's life was so... Uh, you know, detailed and just like span the globe. Literally, he's been to he, he traveled all over the world and he interacted with so many people that there's no way that documentary at that length could have fit all of this information. And I, you know, somebody who did that interview on Tinfoil Hat and several other interviews, uh, not nothing quite like the Tinfoil Hat one. That was kind of an attempt at giving a synopsis of his life. Um but I think there is just so much to touch on that happened in this life that you couldn't fit it all in a documentary. Like they left out the part about Jack the Ripper. I mean, that's an important part of his life where he, you know, had sex with this woman, a maid in his parents' home. He was caught. The maid was fired. The maid became a prostitute. The maid ended up becoming one of Jack the Ripper's victims. And then later in life, Alistair Crowley as a kind of older man runs into Jack the Ripper shares this story with him, makes the connection, allegedly, and then receives this sort of totem, a murder totem. I don't know other, any other way to describe it, but he receives this disgusting bloody rag, you know, from Jack the Ripper. And I apparently kept that for some time. I don't know if he had it with him his whole life, but that's some a story he tells. It could be his own exaggeration to play up that moniker of the wickedest man in the world. He certainly liked to portray himself that way. It was his response to the Christian, strict Christian upbringing. You know, I mean, the, the type of Christianity that his parents were involved with is not run of the mill by any means. It's pretty strict. There's very chaste, you know, they don't condone uh, a lot of kind of emotional connection that makes a family strong. So I think Alistair grew up in a really rigid, strict, unloving environment in some sense, but he was also privileged. You know, he had uh, wealth because of his father's passing. Um, I believe it was his father, his grandfather, possibly, but he inherited a bunch of wealth around the time when he became 19, 20, around that age. And he just started traveling the world and getting into spiritualism, kind of like the story of Buddha, like this rich guy who realizes like, oh, you know, there's more to life than what I can buy. And that's what he became. But I think the, the fact is, is that he never, um, he never quite conquered his own sexual uh, weakness in the sense that he had this really untempered 
sexual desire that colored a lot of his magical workings. And the biggest part, something that Jay and I, we actually just interviewed Joe Roop from Fringe FM, and that's something he taught me about. Uh, he actually is an initiate of the Golden Dawn uh, as well. You know, Alistair Crowley, that's the first order that he ever joined into to kind of get familiar with the magical arts. He, be, he learned, you know, as much as he could, and then he realized, like, I need to start my own thing because these people aren't doing it right. You know, and that's when the kind of fall into this sort of fall from grace, so to speak. Not that he was ever graceful, but I feel like his spiritual potential became dimmer and dimmer the more he fed that lust. And that's why he became associated with characters like Kenneth Anger and, you know, this kind of sinful Hollywood environment that he later in life uh, kind of influenced in some way or another and that's why he was so potent in pop culture and you heard ozzy osbourne and you saw the beatles cover i mean the beatles cover portrays it perfectly alistair crowley belongs in that group because he was someone who interacted with so many people you know and i don't think they even touched on that in the documentary the fact that he you know knew ian fleming he knew aldous huxley he knew l ron hubbard he knew kenneth anger obviously he knew you know all of these different weird occult magicians that most people will never really learn about because they don't choose to go down this path of understanding but Aleister Crowley was a magnanimous person. He really uh, lived a life that was uh, larger than life in the sense of like he traveled the world. He was a mover and shaker in the time when people kind of did that uh, by the seat of their own pants and with a backpack over their back. You know, like when he was traveling around, it was trains and uh, boats, you know, it wasn't like really planes yet. By the time planes and that kind of thing came about, he was already pretty old and then uh, died drug addicted you know and that's something people talk about a lot is like his opium addiction his book uh confessions of an opium addict something along that line you know that's like one of them or confessions of a drug addict is it i don't i don't remember drug fiend you know that's one of the most popular books by him because of its kind of uh i would say nihilistic but also mystical but also hopeless but also kind of edgy because it's drug related and that's why he's kind of floated amongst the uh, fringe scene for such a long time. But it's also kind of like a gothy kind of uh, I want to be black magic cool and do Satan rituals <laughs> like those people are fascinated with them. That's not me at all. I completely came to learn about Crowley uh, from a spiritual lens. And then as I got more into podcast, I realized like, oh, wow, this guy's not that great. And then some people were talking about him like he's this rock star. And that's why I ultimately resolved to talk about Aleister Crowley when I was given the opportunity to go on Tim Fall Hat. Yeah, the thing I kind of felt uh, missing from this documentary on my end, uh, the, la the last I'm going to forget in our book title, but I read a book a few years ago really focusing on sort of his uh, the espionage angle. The movie right. glosses over it. They're just like, Oh, he decided to work for the Germans, which is uh, a super gloss over. Um, yeah, yeah. Secret kind of Agent Six 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 by Richard Spence is is one book that I know um, definitely. That's it. <laughs> yeah, it's it talks a lot about his connections, and he was actually you know on the Lusitania a week before it sank. You know, and if for those who aren't 
familiar with the history of World War One or uh, World War Two, the Lusitania was sunk, you know, in order to it was a false flag. Right. Uh, and that was kind of the impetus for America to come and fight the Germans was yeah, we were, Lusitania. We were just talking here a week or two ago about, um, you know, well, J.P. Morgan getting deciding he's sick the day the uh, Titanic set sail. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think maybe it was the British. They were trying to stoke the British. I, I don't remember it, but well, he was working for England. So, yeah, it must have been they were trying to get the Americans to fight. But people can correct me uh, whether it was World War One or two that the Lusitania was involved with. But that was, yeah, really interesting that he was a involved with that. But then, as you see, the CIA, Hollywood kind of have this connection. And where was he? Later in life, he was traveling around America. He went to California. He was in Mexico even, too. I mean, he, he was in Mexico uh, long enough to, like, become a Freemason within the Mexican uh, Freemason groups. And, you know, that's where he kind of got this fascination with psychedelic drugs, you know, peyote and marijuana. And you know, I'm sure he interacted with drugs before that, but that was a big fundamental uh, change in his life was when he began to become more interested in drugs and you know because he was a mountaineer that's why he traveled so much and that's where the spiritual perspective came from was like going up on top of the tallest mountain and challenging himself to do that I think that's where a lot of the enlightenment happened for him but as he kind of delved further into magic it was you know more material things and he was so popular in the sense of like he had this charm you know because he worked on his mental spiritual physical capacities to be that position and i think that's what made him indispensable as an espionage agent his ability to charm people his ability to you know convey wisdom that made him seem like he had all this like knowledge and esoteric knowledge that's something that a is very compelling to people and b goes hand in hand with espionage secret societies and espionage are hand in hand. I mean, the first spies, uh, you know, were of certain secret orders. The history is varied, but even in the East, the West, uh, secret societies, spies, this is a tool of government, a tool of empire um, for as long as people have been fighting with each other. And Aleister Crowley kind of, he was a Renaissance man in a dark kind of sense. Like he, he, he played in those realms of like the military and global politics and drugs and trafficking uh, when it was still kind of above board. Yeah. Lusitania is world war one, just to confirm you on that, because uh, the Thank world you. war two story I really enjoy is that bizarre um, magical battle with Rudolf Hess. Um, Thank you. I, I, yeah. That, I want to see that as a movie. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for reminding me of that. That's another one. That's really interesting. Yeah. He was, he was fighting on the side of England and the United States in a magical war against the Nazis. I mean, they were essentially using this kind of counter propaganda to like, cause they knew that Hitler was very fascinated with astrology and having readings and oracles and using divination to plan his battles and whatnot so they thought that if they had a guy like crowley who seemingly knew everything about it there all there was to know about the esoteric in that realm 
they were able to use him and his knowledge to kind of create a false narrative through which Adolf planned his attacks, but without real causality because he was given false information. So to me, that indicates that a, the military, the governments, they recognize that there is power to this stuff. So that means Alistair Crowley wasn't just some shamster because if they really like were worried that Adolf was, you know, I mean, maybe that's losing sight of it. But the point is, is that Adolf, you know, was sidetracked by the propaganda that Alistair Crowley was able to spin up uh, in this kind of mystic sort of way. That's what they knew uh, Adolf would be interested in. And then as the war unraveled and things got deeper and deeper, uh, you know, this magical battle took place where apparently they convinced Rudolf has to take a airplane, you know, and meet Alistair Crowley for a battle in Scotland. And obviously it was all a trap. Crowley was never waiting for him in any field. And when Rudolf has landed, he had all of these like magical sigils emblazoned on a parachute outfit, like a jumpsuit. And, you know, was quickly captured by the authorities, Crowley not even needing to be there. And then I'm I'm almost certain it could be wrong about this, that he was involved with the uh, interrogation of Rudolf Hest in some way, uh, if not other members of the National Socialists of Germany, because these, you know, people, they, you know, Hitler, Adolf Hitler was very fascinated with the occult. I mean, empires since the beginning of time, again, very fascinated with these occult practices because there is power in them. So when Adolf planned this trip to India and he went to the Himalayas and he went, you know, to Egypt, he wasn't just taking vacation folks. He was trying to take as much knowledge as he could around the world and compile it into this sort of new religion that, I mean, ultimately failed, but I, I mean, I'm not willing to get into that too deeply because I'm not really knowledgeable too much on the National Socialists and Adolf, but I do know that that's primarily why Crowley was involved was because the occult was something that both sides, the Allies and the Axis, were using to get a, a gain a military advantage over their enemy. I've still been uh, waiting for one of those uh, wish.com pop-ups to uh, offer me my Anakian coat. Although, I don't know, you probably don't actually want to go around wearing those symbols. Uh, they, they do offer overpriced Luciferizing jackets, but that's a, another thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Enoch stuff is also very interesting. I mean, for those who aren't aware, uh, another really interesting figure that Crowley was familiar with practiced with or at least was inspired by um eliphas levy right and he did this kind of enochian ritual with him to create uh the language of the angels through which they can communicate uh with higher entities and whatnot and people can go and find that book and you know it just kind of looks like a bunch of flowery flowery scribbles and if you try you can try to like write words out in this language that they created but it's very interesting stuff yeah i one thing this doctor that i thought was a little weird was um i think they straight out say like you know anakian magic is communicating with demons i'm saying there wasn't john d and his buddy trying to communicate with uh with angels right right that's what it was i think it was john d and eliphas levy 
not Alistair Crowley, but he was uh, Alistair afterwards was very inspired by that and took it, took it under his own, you know, wing and worked with Enochian magic, but you're absolutely right. It's the language of the angels, not the language of demons, but that's how modern, uh, you know, secular Christianity colors, anything occult or esoteric is a demon, you know, especially the, the BBC, I suppose, uh, keep that stiff upper lip and, uh, throw everything out the door. Um, right. <laughs> but yeah, like you're saying, maybe they're painting the strokes a little bit too broadly here. I mean, Crowley, a fascinating man, but yeah, he's a pretty gnarly dude. He's not someone you want to invite to your party unless you're expecting your party to get like, you know, super wild. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he was really like, he had a really poor reputation with the people that knew him deeply, like uh, on an intimate level. He was known to, you know, be an abusive partner and take advantage of people and, and obviously more than just an egomaniac, somewhat of a megalomaniac in the sense that he his actions were truly kind of mega, right? I mean, someone who's an egomaniac might be as crazy as him, but not have as much impact, but he actually had an impact on the world. And even though, uh, you know, we can say, yeah, he was a narcissist, he was this, he was that, he's all these bad things. I always, I always at, you know, my own risk at my own expense every time because people hate me when I do this. I always give Aleister Crowley credit uh, for exposing some of these spiritual things uh, to the public. I mean, the amount of books he wrote is pretty incredible for the subject that he was writing about. It's just the similar, there aren't many similar authors. I mean, I would say Manly P. Hall is a better source of that sort of information than Aleister Crowley, a more detailed, more in depth. Uh, but again, you know, I, Manly P. Hall came sometime after Aleister Crowley, um, but secret contemporary still. The, you know, secret teaching of the Asian, uh, hey, Asians, well, I live in Asia, uh, the Asians. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, that, is a, that is a monster of a book. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely one of the most pivotal books in my life that I've ever read amongst. I mean, the Aleister Crowley books that I own were not really that pivotal to me, honestly, because they're dense. They're hard to understand. He writes within the context of his life, and he didn't really put much thought, I think, into making the work super accessible. Right. Like it requires a certain amount of initiation to understand certain parts of his books. But there are things that are fairly easy and approachable. Um, but I will say that owning his book, uh, Alistair Crowley Magic, Lieber Four, it was, you know, kind of a magnet of weird activity uh, when I took it out in public. You know, I've talked about this on other podcasts, but one time I had it at work and this crazy guy came into this cafe I worked at at the time and, you know, did this weird like Bible ritual, like writing in the middle of the Bible, uh, scribbling with like an electric candle, didn't buy a coffee. So I go over and I'm like, hey, man, you got to buy a coffee before you can do some black magic in our cafe. And he gets all mad at me and mentions Aleister Crowley's name when he's buying a coffee and the book was like under the counter. There's no way he could have saw it. So it's just so strange that like, okay, the one day I bring this crazy weird book to uh, a public place, <laughs> this guy comes, you know, floats on over. So it's definitely, you know, he's, he's a source of something, man. He definitely tapped into something powerful Crowley did. 
how do you how do you invoke Crowley when ordering a coffee? Is that what like by Crowley I'll have a latte? I don't know something like that. <laughs> yeah, he was just so mad. He was like, he was mad that I called him out for not buying a coffee, and then he tried to like he tried to like he was obviously schizophrenic or some something because he tried to like intimidate me by saying like I'm the seventh son of Alistair Crowley and Charles Manson is my father and you know I'm being haunted like it was weird. It was like he was trying to scare me by telling me he was possessed i i don't know how that would have scared me but uh i'm pretty confident in my my spiritual beliefs but he didn't know that you know yeah um i I guess we get the uh sometimes well not always but sometimes we get the 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 more innocuous version of a crazy here in japan just uh my my last crazy experience uh i take trains to work and stuff so i'm at the train platform it's the middle of the day there's some guy 20 too old to be doing this but not that old just walking up and down the platform like mimicking the train announcements the next day i come there's another guy doing it and the next week they're like competing they're like on different train platforms trying to do the train announcements uh louder than the other so like (laughs) miming them or actually saying them Actually, saying them, they're just walking up and down, like you know, Mamunaku, Shinonoi Eki. Yes, <laughs> that <laughs> just means we're approaching Shinonoi Station. <laughs> wow, so, uh, very interesting. See, now this is why I brought Jay here because we're really interested in what's going on over there in Japan. I don't want to divert off the subject too much, but I, I mean, Crowley, he went to Asia. Have you ever looked into his uh, his time in Asia at all? I don't know if he was in Japan, though. Uh, I think he might have just went to like places in China and Southeast Asia. I'm pretty sure he uh, passed through Japan, but I don't think he had like a particularly uh, long stay. And, and I could be completely wrong about that as well. Um, yeah. I guess the, the, the magical vibe here, I'm in the, the mountains in the center of Japan. Um, so it's a uh, Nagano, but the the traditional title around here is like shinshu which is pure land and it contains a temple that has the first image of uh buddha that was in japan which nobody wow. can see uh i think only the high priestess they have a priestess there can see it and um every seven years they'll have a big festival at the temple and let you see a copy of the statue or the image but you can't see the real thing really that's a, that's like the um What's what it what it that's like the drawing of Muhammad almost <laughs> can't yeah. draw him you can't nobody can see what he looks like but I, I guess it makes sense in that sense of like you don't want to have a you don't have idol worship maybe I don't know that's interesting though uh, for for listeners or for yourself or anyone who ends up this is a the Zen Koji Temple uh, another fun thing it has is behind the main temple area area you can go underground. Um, it's pitch black and you walk the circuit and in the middle of the circuit, you're supposed to find a um, kind of, it's like a switch or a metal handle. Of course, I haven't seen it. It's pitch black. So, but uh, the idea is if you go to this temple, you're, you gain the temple's enlightenment by finding this handle somewhere in the yeah. darkness. <sighs> All right. So it's just there. Do people are people allowed to go look for it? Yeah. 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 On a, a, now a real real groovy day you know is like a weekday there's nobody there and you're doing it by yourself that that's when it does have a little more of a spiritual um you know now when people people find the handle do they like get excited and shout or something like what do you do when you find it yeah yeah you just never find it 
Oh, you find it. You can find it. Um, you just need to keep feeling on the wall as you walk. So on a weekday, you're there by yourself. There actually is, you know, a, a nice spiritual component. If you go on a Saturday, you're in a line of giggling tourists and stuff. So uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear kids uh, going like, Ata, Ata, you know, so it's it's not so enlightening <laughs> when you do it that way. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, fun. I yeah. Wow. Nagano. Bunch of Very people cool. stumbling through the dark looking for enlightenment, you know, <laughs> It's, yeah. a, it's a fun line to be in. Um, uh, we can go on any tangents about Japan, but uh, just one one big thing I wanted to get on the uh, Crowley is uh, we were talking about the Golden Dawn, the climbing, kind of cool stuff, right? The earlier, you know, maybe publicly we don't know that he abandoned his mountaineering team or that he'd been um, having his way with the maid. So it seems his evening in the Great Temple uh, the great temple the great pyramid seems to be that turning point we get the book of law from his uh his wife and stuff but i am sitting here wondering if he had not had that if he would have over the next 20 years you know built himself into like a victorian age eckert tolle or something and then just had a bunch of scandals in the 30s when all this stuff came to light <laughs> yeah yeah no it's funny you know he left the abramelin ritual you know, unfinished, which was like this long, arduous process, multiple, multiple months of ritual. He meets this woman, Rose Kelly, stops doing the ritual, runs away with her. They go to Egypt and she's kind of like hanging along at his side, like not really understanding what they're doing, you know, but he's like, listen, like, I need you for this. Like, you're going to be a part of this, you know, like you're uh the conduit you know that the god is going to speak through you you know so days go by and she's like i'm not really feeling it i don't know what's going on like i don't know what to expect and he's like trust me you know like i know it horace is here he's gonna talk to us he's gonna talk to us through you so eventually something gives way and a being named Iwas spelled out with like multiple I's and A's and a W and S's is very like it doesn't look like a normal word. It looks like it's spelled phonetically. So you can be like Iwas, you know, like it's very weird word. But apparently Iwas, um, you know, relayed this information channeled it through rose and then that became the book of the law and that was in the great pyramid and you know people probably romanticize it and maybe portray her as like his willing you know cute little like magician's assistant or something but she really like had no idea what was going on you know and i think he might have even been intentional in that sense of like he didn't want her to lead the information with anything so he kept her in the dark in the sense so like she could be a perfect channel and there wouldn't be any bias at all uh but he was also a very manipulative and controlling person by all accounts so like he enjoyed putting someone in that kind of position where like oh like you don't know anything and i know everything and just wait 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 you know like oh trust me wait you know and he i think he really took pleasure in bringing people down that kind of experience and that's probably why he was so compelled to start his own order you know oriental templi orientis or order templi orientis you know the oto um, and that ultimately became something that I think he was kicked out of by the people that joined in, you know, because he, he didn't really live a very uh, 
ordered life. It was a very chaotic life. And, you know, his romantic uh, occasions, like the one at the pyramid, it, it was supposed to be their honeymoon, but he's out there at the Great Pyramid trying to channel some spirits. So he was a very focused person in the sense that he had like this one purpose and nothing got in the way of that, but he definitely used the people around him to get uh, certain steps ahead. Sounds like a hell of a debauched honeymoon. Is they they call it a debauched honeymoon this in this uh, documentary a few times, but uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, the you know the pickup line at a party. Uh, I guess he actually used it, which most of us don't have the guts to do. You know, hey babe, you're gonna help me bring on the Aeona Horus. You know, <laughs> what's that mean? <laughs> yeah, what I mean, what's that like in Japan? Are they? Uh, are, what's the dating life like? Oh. I'm married. I, I'm living in a house here with. Uh, I got an 11 year old daughter. That said, um, I was actually I was talking to Brad Olson last week. Um, oh yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had him on the show too. Yeah, I think that's why I invite him. To be honest, um, I, I steal your bookings sometimes, man. <laughs> after you've booked them, but um, you know, he had been here in Japan like um, in the 90s, and he was like uh, talking about how yeah, I was just I was being a playboy, and then people were like, you know, the term sensei actually carries some respect, and it's like, oh, maybe I should like tone it down a little bit. But um, now it does depend if you're like in Tokyo or Osaka, or you're like in the uh, countryside or something, um, like. Uh, the co-host for my well sometimes here and i, I do sci-fi movies with him and uh when he when he first moved here a few years ago he had a he had a steady sweetie but now he's uh you know rolling the dice we had we had our vacation week a few um a few weeks ago and he, he was going to go to osaka to you know go meet another lady but uh then the state of emergency sort of put the kibosh on all uh, that <laughs> yeah yeah no i only ask because you you know you're you're right. He was kind of like uh, he was confident. You know, he did date a lot of women, Alistair Crowley. But I wonder how he would do in Japan. I wonder how I would do in Japan. Jay, I know Jay wants to get out to Japan and meet some Japanese ladies. That's his <laughs> that's his fetish. Get out of here, Mark. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's that. that's inappropriate. No, no human being should be fetishized. I take that back. Social justice warriors. Yeah. Um, I guess the thing in Japan, it would, it's very easy to get talking to someone. If, uh, I, I, when I was in my 20s and, and playing in the field, I'd find, because in America, there's, you know, we talk about like the friend zone. Usually if someone, if a, a lady's talking to you, she's at least mildly interested. Now, establishing a relationship, you might find yourself like within two weeks having, having someone, you know, getting real serious about you as well. Or finding out that, hey, this isn't working at all. So, um so quick my, to commit or quick to bail sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, my first um, relationship in Japan. And here I, I'll, I'll actually tag myself out as having a... Um, basically, she was eight years... She was very attractive, but eight years older than me, and I could never get over that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, man. I have another guy. He, yeah, I think he ended up... Yeah, he's married. He has a kid with a, a lady 10 years older than him. So, you know, it wasn't his problem. But uh, yeah, I guess if something doesn't sit well with you, it's just it's not going to sit well with you, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we're, like I said, Jay and I are super interested in Japan. Jay more so than me, but I would love to go. I mean, do you have any advice for folks who might want to travel out there? And it's hard to say in COVID times, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, right now I, I haven't traveled anywhere for quite some time um you know i'd say uh, you know people want to see tokyo of course but 
that's a that's like calling New York City all of America. It's it's a real different scene once you get out. Um, you know, for me, I, I like hiking. Um, I got into podcasts uh, basically because I just started walking all the time. You know, uh, I'm listening to stuff, walking through rice fields at midnight and stuff. So uh, I, I'm into Very just cool. strolling through the mountains. We live in a valley, so uh, you know, the guy that does the sci-fi podcast and myself, we can just look at a mountain and say, I'm walking up that today and kind of doing <laughs> that. So, so it's fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awesome, man. So you're out, like you said, you're in the sort of central area. The pure land is what it's called. Not, yeah, yeah. Know. Yeah, that'd be the cool. translation. And that one actually was weird. Um, I didn't even know that. And I'm, I was walking before I started listening to podcasts. I was just playing like Alan Watts recordings, right? Yeah. And I'm walking he start. that's where i learned he's like shouldn't you pure land there's a place where and i'm like wait i'm walking in that place right now that's trippy <laughs> yeah yeah dude alan watts is a big part of me kind of reaching this point where i'm at now but yeah alan watts and some good acid that's a great way to spend the day <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> no japan that is one thing japan we really don't get any of that so but hey, that's part of where I started getting more like, I guess, spiritual or meditational. I'm like, right. I want to, no, you know out. what? <laughs> yeah, no. And there is something about being in a certain landscape that is intoxicating in and of itself. So you might not even really need that to have a, you know, whereas like if you're living in like a, a depressed New York City cityscape, hellscape, you're like, you need some acid to realize what spirituality is again. You know, it sounds like when you walk around Tokyo or the at least where you are, not Tokyo, Japan, um, there's sort of a spiritual atmosphere at play. Uh, one of my buddies in Tokyo, he's Australian and um, he's like, I, I wish I was more into like mycology because if you mm. go up these mountains, you would find, um, you'd, if you knew what you were looking for, you could probably find some pretty interesting mushrooms here and there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Massive mushrooms like, or just strange mushrooms? Because I, I, a couple, maybe last year, uh, a couple months ago in fall, I was walking and I found a mushroom. I mean, almost the size of my wingspan and i'm six eight <laughs> so like this is seven feet almost wingspan and it was it was that it was almost that big around like six feet is how big this turkey tail mushroom was i mean it could have been multiple turkey tails and like it just grew on top of itself but it was like i mean is that what we're talking about here japanese mushrooms yeah i mean you know because they they had some of that stuff going on not not like they wouldn't like you know siberian those uh santa caps or whatever but uh <laughs> um in japan it was actually uh they were perfectly legal till about 2002 2003 uh, they had the world cup and i i think they were worried that like at that time that you know there was no legalization anywhere right so they were kind of concerned the international community would like look down on the fact that you could um still trip out on mushrooms there again my australian buddy's a little older than me he came a few years earlier and had a couple years where he could like legally do that so really? again there's, there's no moral issue right it's just like is it legal is it illegal uh marijuana was you could buy it in drugstores until after world war ii and we've got to put the blame on that on a uh, macarthur the japanese themselves weren't like we want to make it illegal macarthur made it illegal for them while he was uh for the couple of years he was basically running the show. 
Yeah, wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, I've heard that marijuana is not really bueno in Japan. Like they don't, you know, they're they're strict. But I don't know how true. I never knew how true that was. But the whole Super Mario mushroom connection. Some people say like, oh yeah, those Nintendo guys, they were tripping out on mushrooms. That's why there's all these Mario mushrooms in the Mario game. I, I don't know if they were or not, but in the eighties, yeah, yeah, they they could have been, and no one would have had a problem with it. So, <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, dude, this Alistair Crowley stuff, it's very interesting, but I feel like uh, I'd be down to do more episodes like this where you send me a cool documentary like on other things. I mean, Crowley's definitely someone I've studied uh, often, but yeah, this is fun, man. I appreciate you having me on so far. What do, do we do? We finish off on the Crowley stuff too soon. We can get back into that. I don't want to get too sidetracked on Japan. Did you have more to say about Crowley? Not so much to say about Crowley. I'll, I'll kind of like have a run over my notes one more time, but I, I did want to ask, and I'll throw this question to both of you. If you had the Great Pyramid to yourself for the night, what would you do? <laughs> would, when would you take the opportunity? Jay? Uh, uh, I'd create uh, some type of electricity current to see if it's really <laughs> to see if it's really conductive, like they say. So Jay would try to turn the pyramid on. <laughs> exactly. Turn, turn the pyramid on. Yeah, that sounds a little racy. <laughs> and that's what I would try to do. I would try to turn. I would try to turn the pyramid on. <laughs> no, if I had if I had one night in the pyramid, I mean, I'd probably just a be extremely grateful. I hope that happens one day. Wishful thinking. Um, but uh, yeah, I would just probably, as corny as this sounds, meditate <laughs> and just be present and just be grateful because I know it isn't something that anyone really gets a chance to do. So I would be extremely grateful. And I think in that feeling, you would probably connect with something higher than yourself. So that's where I would go, as cheesy as it sounds. In the sarcophagus, in the sarcophagus or outside the sarcophagus? I would go as high up as possible. I would be at like the cap of the pyramid. Oh, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be like underground. First of all, I'm like, like I said, I'm very tall, so I don't think I could fit in all those chambers comfortably. I don't know. Maybe they're huge. Maybe some of them are small, but like I, I would try to be on top of the pyramid as much as possible. I was thinking, yeah, my, my thought is you'd meditate, too. I'd want to see if I'd open that, you know, astral door into somewhere else, you know, like. Right. Um, but now that I think about what I'd probably start doing, because I was noticing what, watching the guy going through in here, there'd be about 10 minutes. Echo, echo. <laughs> but if you watch that scene in the dock again, listen to the echoes that are coming through. I don't know if it's a sound equipment, but it doesn't really quite sound like what he's saying being echoed back really yeah just uh, I, I mean i was watching this last night with a drinking hand so you know keep, keep that in mind too but <laughs> i was like just really paying attention he'd, he'd say something like you know in the king's chamber and i'd be like ruh, ruh, ruh. it just was like it, yeah no i didn't like, catch on to that but i i wouldn't doubt it given the strange dimensions of the building itself that there would be some odd acoustics at play yeah and then that leads me to think if I did get more serious, maybe because at first I was like, I, I do like my normal kind of meditation, the kind I do at temples. Um, that is one thing. Uh, I, I work in a suburban school now, so there's like five temples I can hit 
they kind of have different personalities. That's what I do for my lunch break. But uh, in the pyramid, yeah, I guess I'd really want to get into the sound meditation. Just since mm. it seems like a real good place for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really be centered. We had a, a woman who's become a friend to me uh, who lives up in Alaska. She's a really cool chick. She's a sound healer. I'd be curious. Maybe there's a documentary you two could watch together. But um, yeah, she's really cool. She talked about sound healing on her first appearance on our show, episode five, I think, or six, episode six. But yeah, the, the amount of uh, science that's actually out there about the real nature of sound is quite, quite incredible. Like, have you seen the in Japan uh, Masaru Emoto studies, like the of what you know certain words can do to freezing water? I mean these temples also have similar uh, beneficial effects. Like there's a video I watched on Instagram, I think a couple uh, weeks ago, someone showed me uh, where this woman was playing some sort of instrument in a temple and the water was like creating all these patterns. It had something in it to like give dimension to it, but it was very, very interesting. The uh, sacred geometry. Yeah, well, when I say that's the, I've, I've heard it referred to as structured water or, you know, 4D phase water. Um, yeah, Dr. Dana Cohen, quench 4D water. That's that's something people should look up because it's very, very interesting to know that there's a fourth state of water. <laughs> and uh, one big plus we have up here in the mountains that Tokyo doesn't have is all the hot springs. Mm. Um, uh, like, I can go before work. So yesterday I did. They got a they got a sauna. So I got sort of you know the the hot cold thing right. They got a cold bath, yeah. hot bath. They got the uh, the volcanic water, and this is one of the older ones in Japan. So it's you know it's supposed to be pretty good water. And I'm just wondering if that's structured. They have like signs of like the chemical you know composition of this water. It tends to be more sulfuric. Um, a lot of it, especially in this area, uh, when you come out, it, it almost feels like your skin has like this weird quicksilver quality when you come out for at least a, a few minutes. Quicksilver? Do you mean like slick, kind of like yeah, I mean slick. Wet? Yeah, slick, not like like a not like a, you know a mercury uh, uh, spill or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I immediately thought of the Silver Surfer for some reason, like shooting through the sky on a surfboard. <laughs> that's not the wrong that's not the wrong thought but yeah just just like that's kind of weird because you know usually we have a little friction when we run our hand along our arm or something like that so yeah are there's uh snow monkeys up there or am i thinking of further north oh you're this is definitely the right place um the snow monkeys i think they're about 50 kilometers which like 35 miles from here so yeah yeah when my parents have visited or friends we will take them up there uh that's kind of fun you, you have to hike in uh, there, there's a monkey onsen, a monkey hot spring, basically. So you park your car um, or you take a bus up there, I suppose. Um, it's about a 30-minute hike. And you come to this place, you pay buy a cheap ticket, and you go in and you're just walking amongst the monkeys so they can attack you if they want to. <laughs> I, I guess they're used to people. but uh... That's awesome. Yeah, I've seen that. And that's it kind of plays into something I've been thinking about a lot is because apparently the theory is that not all of those um, monkeys knew how to kind of use the hot springs in the sense of like they didn't really like interact with them much. 
Uh, and there's these different groups of monkeys on the islands uh, that were not, you know, communicating with each other, obviously separated geographically. And somewhere or another, these scientists that were studying them found that when one group of monkeys began to learn like what they can do in the hot springs, the isolated regions of monkeys fell in line with that new thing. And there was like this instinctual uh, kind of learning that went on, even though there wasn't any kind of physical interaction. But this is a part of Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenetic theory that animals and plants are connected to this consciousness matrix where ideas in one point and place in time can ripple outwards and have an effect on other conscious beings. Uh, and I think we see that in certain primates with the, you know, the learning aspect, uh, you know, they take on all these different tools and do these different things to advance themselves. And I mean, maybe I'm getting too biological. <laughs> I'm not really a scientist, but that I thought that was interesting. No, I was actually going to tie that back in with, with the uh, whole Crowley vibe a little bit. Um, just the idea, you know, I mean, his magic with a K or whatever, sex magic, she has it, sex magic, all that stuff. Right. But um, I mean, that's traumatic magic traumatic magic okay there we go like you participate in that and you come out like oh you know you need all these ceremony you need all these accoutrements whereas the monkeys they're you know in tune with with whatever quantum fields are there i mean that's what a meditator would be trying to do right just get in touch with the field you're not traumatizing anyone or any anything like that uh the the Crowley dictum do what thou wilt I mean it sounds makes him sound like an asshole so I like add to that and make it my personal credo do what thou wilt but don't be an asshole <laughs> yeah no amen I definitely agree with that I think you know what's interesting about what you just pointed out there is like the items the tools the physical objects that are used in these sort of magical rituals it's important to notice what you know what you just said there I mean, why they use these items is because it creates, and this is something Joe Roop talked to Jay and I about, um, it, it creates this framework that your mind remembers so that when you go into the astral realm, these really potent symbols that you have in front of you in your living waking life carry over into the astral realm, and that helps facilitate your lucid lucidity and helps initiates who go through this process uh, begin to wake up when they're sleeping and actually begin to do beneficial dream work, you know, work that progresses their uh, alchemical evolution, their spiritual enlightenment. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of found just for myself, cause I, I've actually managed a little bit of that a few times, you know, kind of wanting to have a lucid dream and doing it a little bit by accident and then learning, Oh, this actually is a thing. And um, yeah. So, you know, the, the daytime meditation, that's like a Zen thing, just like, you know, on a real good meditation. I, I usually meditate during my lunch break and, and if I come out, you know, I have a count, so it should be the same time, but sometimes like, has it been five hours? Did I just miss my classes? You know, <laughs> And, and the timing worked out. So I'm like, oh, that was successful. I actually lost all track of time and space for a, a few moments there. So success. And other days you're sitting there thinking about um, after I'm finished meditating, what Amazon search I'm going to do. You know, it goes both ways. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, no. I yet that early morning thing, I, I guess you got the, the DMT 
accessible in your head. And uh, yeah, that 3 a.m. or for me, it's usually a 5 or 6 a.m. wake up call. I mean, maybe that's a plus here that the uh, we don't do daylight savings time. So the sun is coming out like 4.30 in the morning right now. <laughs> so How do you think that, you know, living in that life uh, scape of time where there isn't that kind of truncation of time into daylight savings for whatever weird reason they explain that whole thing. Do you think that that's had a different effect on your life? I mean, do you think that you're able to have a more consistent rhythm to your life because of that? Yeah. And here, here's one reason why, and this actually, because you know, we're pretty urban in America, right? So people don't notice so much, but I, I actually, um, I stop, I get off one or two train stations early to get some exercise. I used to weigh like 93 kilos. So I'm, you know, trying to keep walking a lot. Um, that's like 210 pounds, I think. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm yeah, that just around. went right over our head. Could you tell that we have no idea what kilos are, Jay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's, a, that's about oh. 200, 210 pounds. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, you I, don't I, look it at all. I got to say. If oh, you no, told no, me no, you, no. I, I've gotten down to 79. Uh, it's awesome by not living in America, by walking a lot and that sort of thing. Um, by cutting down on my drinking is not one of them, but uh, what, can, what do you do? <laughs> you gotta, well, maybe you they have the healthier. They, I, I would imagine they might have healthier booze in Japan. There's probably less fluoride in the alcohol out there. Yeah, actually, I only drink one thing. Uh, to be honest, drinking alcohol now basically gives me a headache. Something like uh, Nihonshu, Japanese sake and um you know beer instant wine especially instant headache deal so the only thing i drink is a and this, sound, this sounds so hipster but you can buy it in the convenience stores here uh it's chew high which is it's just vodka and shochu and some fruit juice and yeah i prefer ah, okay. to get the one that has no sugar added when possible so um, so wait can you say the name of that again because that's like the japanese white claw right <laughs> i guess so uh chew high that's a uh, chu dash H I if you're writing Chihai. it high in English. Okay. So that's the that's the only thing I drink, but yeah, I, I like drinking Chuhai. So <laughs> All right. like a, the fantastic Mr. Fox where the uh the guy just has a cider every night, you know? That I guess that's me now. <laughs> yeah, well I mean now I'm realizing you've been in Japan, so you probably don't even know that White Claw is like super popular. It's like what you just described. Do you not know? I mean, everybody's drinking it in the past year. I've noticed this vodka seltzer uh, flavored fruit drinks are like crazy popular. So you're not, I don't think you're hipster at all, actually. Okay. Although um, in Japan, we do get the nice, um, the the less sugar version. I'm, I'm guessing the White yeah, Claw is like a, like a, you know, some sugar water and some vodka, right? Which you can get those <laughs> versions here as well, but I, try to avoid them uh most of the time but uh yeah well yeah, jay no. and i we're into the new england ipa to be honest i i can't speak for jay his alcohol taste is much more diverse than mine but i'm not a fan of the white claws so maybe i'll try a chew high though this sounds yeah. interesting it you sounds know, 20- good i just looked it up looks like a <laughs> enticing can <laughs> oh yeah they got good marketing in japan so um <laughs> jay, yeah jay's jay loves japanese culture you don't have to sell him very hard on uh the, the labels no my big uh yeah my big ipa not so much ipa is just the micro brews was um about 20 years ago as being more of a, a proper hippie and teaching environmental education it was a uh, Saco, maine so we'd run into portland maine and uh hit up all the pubs and, and try their beers 
I used to have more headaches then too, but oh well. <laughs> um, I guess, yeah, we probably should be winding down today. I, I try to keep these under an hour because for, you know, kind of the headier podcast, you got what the higher side goes for two hours, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the conspiracy guys, you know, I hope you have your day empty. <laughs> and, and well, you know, you, you get two hours if you're a plus member. Are you also a plus member of the higher side chats, Matt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's okay. one where I've I've been Very giving cool. man his dime for quite a while. Cause uh, <laughs> hey, I'll yeah, I'll plug that show. It's usually worth hearing that second one. So uh, for now, I mean this this is the operation, man. <laughs> so yeah, no, I I would just point that out though, cause it's cool. I I love meeting people who are also plus members, cause I think Greg does such a unique job at making a brilliant show. You know, like there's so many shows that touch on those topics. But the way he does it is pretty brilliant. So it's cool. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a connection here as far as like I, when you told me it was a documentary podcast, I wasn't sure what to think. I probably should have listened to a few episodes before I before I said yes, but I'm not afraid to say yes to anything. So I was like, hell yeah. But I, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. I love talking to you, man. You're definitely on top of uh, a lot of the things that I claim to know about. And, you know, this seems like oral hygiene is a great listen. I got to check it out. Yeah. One of the things is I, um, I, I you know, it's, I'm the it's I'm have the full oversight now. So originally it was just an excuse. I was already doing the sci-fi film podcast. I got a good friend in Atlanta. I was like, let's podcast about something. And we get we just do a couple every uh Tuesday morning, every other week we'll do two episodes. And it was just a chance to talk to your old buddy, right? Have a good time, get into some films. Uh then I was like, Oh, Friday, I got some other people I can talk to. And then last month I was like, so we're doing educational films mostly and, and experimental ones and uh, I used to say weird documentaries. I switched it to like interesting documentaries because I'm like, yeah. maybe I want some of the filmmakers to come talk to me and I don't want to call them weird. <laughs> At least yeah, not, that's, not directly. <laughs> yeah, that's smart. I would recommend because uh, maybe just because we just had Birch Driver on our show. We just did an interview with him. We talked about Buckminster Fuller the whole time. And there's some really interesting stuff about that guy. If you can dig up a documentary about him, you can definitely, I would love to put you in touch with Birch because you guys could have a great conversation there. Uh, and then another really interesting um, rabbit hole that you might not have gone down yet is there's this YouTube series that I got into called defunct land. Oh, it's all about, trust me that I, that one, they you know about it. it. And yeah. Be- They've gotten an invite from this podcast, not responded to yet, but that's okay. Sometimes you try a few times, you know. Yeah, yeah. that's isn't that great though? That whole series is so interesting. I, you can't call it a documentary, but the whole thing is like documentary. Yeah. Um. In fact, so if you want to hear one of our shows, I released last week because Sunday, Saturday or Sunday is now my guest slot. Um. My coworkers okay. like, why are you doing so many podcasts? I'm like, oh, I just roll out of bed and and talk to someone, but uh. If you want a defunct land vibe, I posted last week uh, Monsanto's House of the Future. And, yeah. and I, brought in, I brought in Charlie Robinson for that one. So you could just rant on Monsanto for a while. <laughs> Dude, I mean, this is synchronicity because I was literally watching that World's Fair video and got in. Like, I really was compelled like, whoa, Monsanto, Disney, there's the connection. That's why Monsanto's just weaseled its way into everything. And then... Um, 
when I dug a little deeper, I was at this bookstore and I found like a Chicago world's fair book. And, you know, I started digging through that and found some cool stuff, but yeah, I definitely want to check that out, man. Anything in that realm, like Tartaria lost history. If you find anything like that, please keep me in mind. Cause I'd love to come back and do another one of these. Oh, for sure. Yeah. What I, what I try to do is, um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm, there might be a point where I do a more like recent YouTube video, but I'll try to go like as vintage as possible. So for my Insanto, cool. you put, we, we wouldn't even have to watch the video, but it's basically a 1957 promotional film. Like you yeah. really want to learn about it. Yeah. Going and watching Defunct Lens documentary is probably smarter, but it's oral <laughs> hygiene. We have the weird artwork. I'm like, I, I want to keep it as vintage as possible. So for today, yeah. Crowley, it's like, yeah, 2003. That's that seems vintage enough for, you know, well, they did use a lot of vintage source material in that uh, documentary. I will say like the, the audio files of Crowley actually talking. That's that's cool stuff. I don't know if you could just find that with a traditional search engine. I did try and induce nightmares or something a few years. It probably actually I was probably trying to induce lucid dreams, but uh, I went to sleep listening to his recording of uh, reading the book of law once, which now, oh, I don't think man. I do that. I don't think I do that now, to be honest, I'd find something else, but uh, <laughs> not, yeah. I don't think anything particularly happened from that. So, <laughs> yeah, I would, I, I would recommend anybody who's interested in Crowley uh, proceed with caution because it's not that just reading it will become dangerous to you. It's just like, do you really want to invite that energy into your life? There's other places to find that information now. You know, maybe in the 1950s it would have been groundbreaking, but there are better sources. I would say go to Israel Rigardi if you want to learn about Alistair Crowley. He's a great author. Yeah, yeah I've seen a few of those books. But I mean, the one thing I, I, I have people like, oh, you should put a meditation app on your phone or something like that. And like I said before, for me, kind of the key is to keep it like needing nothing as much as possible is more. And it's harder work and it takes years, you know, like I can look back now. I'd say the past five years is when I started like putting my brain on track. Before that, I was lucky. I'd, I'd hear the, the voice of intuition or from beyond. And I mean, that's I think that's how I ended up in Japan. And, uh, you know, I make music, so I am music before them I was like hey sometimes I'm like why did I write those lyrics I'm like actually teaching myself that's crazy <laughs> but uh the past five years yeah. I can look back five years ago you know uh, this co-worker is always annoying me and there's this problem and uh, why are these people in front of me and yeah just life gets slicker and slicker so you know it takes a while it's it, again it's not a traumatic instant sort of oh something happened it's it's over time and you have to look back over months and years and but then you're like hey things are way nicer now nothing's changed i I'm, i have the same job i'm living in the same house but everything's better you know yeah yeah no i mean are you saying that because you've done the podcast that long you have the foresight is that what you're saying maybe I no, lost. oh you. no I'm, I'm talking about being more like starting meditation practice ah and, yes 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 and yes, like yes. looking being present you know, being present and dealing with people and those sort of things. The last time I actually chewed someone out was um, uh, about a year and a half ago, which was actually my boss. <laughs> but uh, and as soon as you know, I saw it happening, and I, I as soon as after I, I apologized and said the re I think the reason is because I was like I spent five hours in the hospital yesterday for a really um, embarrassing thing, and there's something that may or may not be bleeding at the moment. <laughs> So, uh, you know, you're a little more touchy at that point in time, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. 
And since wow. then, I haven't really had a row with anyone, which is nice. Uh, I've been podcasting about a year and a half, actually getting guests on for a year and uh, going solo with guests only for the past month. So, uh, okay. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of similar, I guess. Jay and I have been podcasting since like 2019, but the first podcast we did was like pretty lame and, and, not a lot of people saw it on YouTube and we didn't even, I didn't even know what a podcast host was back then. So I just like thought YouTube was the best way to go. Cause I couldn't figure it out. Uh, and so then we started my family thinks I'm crazy in October and, and it's been going strong since we've had a guest since episode uh, one, I've had a guest on every time, but the first three were like buddies, not like, you know, actual proper guests, but yeah, it's, it's really cool connecting with you, man. I think that's one of the awesome things about podcasting is like now we, Jay and I learned a little bit about Japan. We learned about you. You got to learn what I know about Crowley and all the listeners learned all of that uh, and more. And yeah, man, I'd love to have you on my show to talk about uh, how you got out to Japan and like maybe some more of the stuff that makes you, you, you know, get into why you do this podcast and everything else. Yeah, definitely. This, this sort of time slot's always good for me. Um, I guess cool. we should wrap it up for today. Can you uh, tell people how to get to your podcast and what you're up yeah. to? Yeah, if uh, people are listening, you can go to www.myfamilythinksomecrazy.com. If you're listening from a desktop or your phone or your tablet, we're on all of those. Go to the browser. Or if you prefer apps, we're on all the apps. You could just search myfamilythinksomecrazy.com. I prefer Podcast Addict if you're listening on Spotify right now. We are losing money. <laughs> so please go to a different app. And then, uh, Jay, do you want to plug your band, dude? Oh, why not, Mark? <laughs> Jay's a drummer. All right. <laughs> Check out Mighty Tortuga, all platforms. Okay. No, I, <laughs> yeah, you're, Mighty Tortuga. Yes. Oh, like yeah. Spanish for turtle. Oh, okay. There we go. No, you're talking to a guy that has uh, seven guitars and an electric cello with a real oh, one downstairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So then we definitely got to have you on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. You and Jake talk about music. We'll get into some conspiracy stuff. Obviously, uh, Charlie's been on my show too. So we're already having similar uh, guests and stuff. So yeah, we got to make that happen, man. It's been really fun. And yeah, thanks for letting us promote our stuff. Yeah, great. Uh, as for this one, I'll, uh, this is Oral Hygiene. It's at, you know, it's at Twitter, Facebook, and I need to actually look up the name. Uh, right now, we have several of our podcasts running under Podcastio Podcastius. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I, yeah, the, uh, my, my co-host um, came up with that. He was trying to come up with the uh, dumbest name possible, but maybe it's memorable, Podcastio Podcastius. You know, when we got some money flowing, and maybe I'll buy a mic stand. <laughs> this is this is my vocal mic for making music <laughs> not bad not bad no and it's just your arm gets tired after a while right <laughs> yeah that's that makes i'm always like rolling a blunt or smoking a blunt so i had to have this all figured out because my yeah. hands need to be free when i'm doing this no it's been it's been many years since someone handed me a blunt though i'd be perfectly happy <laughs> if someone did hand me one but again trade up you live in japan and you know you make the trades right, <laughs> right. not much tobacco gets out to japan uh, in this style no this oh is... and japan tobacco there's a racket that's a wild one i mean <laughs> yeah for a nasty company <laughs> a good oh, one man. to look into 
but uh yeah japanese politics of course has lots of wacky stuff going on too but uh definitely more milk toast than the uh american variety <laughs> mm. okay we will catch this at a later time then so uh keep it real on your your late afternoon i guess i'm i'm going to work that's nine in the morning for me so tomorrow wow. well have a good day man have a good okay. friday bro later thanks uh thanks for having us on man did you advance the film strip are you on the final page well done